Can I say, first of all, this this is uh, probably sounds a bit gushy, but I'm reading your latest book and absolutely loving it. I mean, it's just quite <laughs> incredible. And I'm just wondering, how did you think up a story told from the perspective of a magpie called Tamagotchi? <laughs> Um, well, gush away. I'm absolutely <laughs> fine with readers gushing at me. That's Catherine Chidgy, one of our top writers. Her latest book, The Axeman's Carnival, is actually narrated by a magpie, and it's a finalist for our most prestigious prize for fiction. The Ockham New Zealand Book Awards, 16 books making the final cut. It's very high stakes, it's very high regarded, and it's one of the best writing prizes in New Zealand. But does it pay to be one of our best? Well, it's not going to make you a fortune. There's ongoing concerns about the demise of our literacy rates amongst children as well as fewer adults choosing to pick up and read a book. New Zealand men continue to read less than they used to. When the Nielsen book scan data comes out and says how much of all the fiction is being read is is by New Zealand authors, and in New Zealand it's shocking, it's like 4%. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly, and today on The Detail, two New Zealand writers share two very different ways they make money in an age where people's time and attention spans are shrinking. I'd been thinking about what I wanted my new book to be and was remembering how much I enjoyed writing from a really unexpected point of view in my earlier novel, The Wish Child. And so I started thinking, well, could I go non-human? this time. That's something that I haven't tried before. For a while, I was thinking about a wolf because I had in mind that really famous, quite old YouTube clip now of the husky um, saying, I love you, howling, I love you. Mishka, I love you. I love you. And I really wanted an animal that could talk, obviously, because it had to be narrating a story. And then, you know, that kind of fell by the wayside because I just didn't think that it would have the vocabulary. (laughs) So I started thinking about birds because birds, you know, lots of birds are mimics and can talk. And I was Googling budgerigars and minor birds and parrots and things. And I realized that every morning when I went to my writing room at home and opened the window, I could hear the song of the magpies pouring in from the rural land behind our house. And they were also strutting around on the land right outside my window, just a couple of metres from where I would sit at my desk. And so it was almost as if they were saying to me, here we are, we've been here this whole time, when are you going to notice us? (laughs) Yeah, so that was how Tama was hatched. Catherine's speaking to me from her office at Waikato University, where she lectures in creative writing. She's up at six every morning to write, drops her daughter at school, goes to her day job, does the school run again, then dinner, and then she's in bed writing again, day after day. (laughs) It's insane. I don't recommend this schedule for (laughs) anyone out there. Basically, I have no other life. Are you doing it for financial reasons? Are you um, holding down this full-time job and then doing, doing your writing on the side because you have to? I don't think that I would advise anyone to take up writing as a profession if they want to rely on that for a steady income (laughs) because it's only a very few number of writers who can do that, who can bring in a regular steady income that they can live on from their writing alone. 
it's an it's a nice little side hustle for me. <laughs> but no, I mean, even if I wasn't bringing in any money at all from the writing, I'd still be doing it because I'm driven to do it and I want to get the next story out there. Let's do a breakdown of, of what you get paid. So so when I went to buy your book at the bookstore, The Old Fashioned Way, I paid yep. $35. Now, my understanding yep. is you get about 10% of that, so that would be $3.50? Yes, the writer usually gets 10% on the cover price excluding GST. So, And that's also pre-tax. So, so, yeah, so I would pay tax on that. Um $3. Wow. wow. 40% goes to the bookstore, 40% goes roughly to the publisher? Yes, that is right. That retail takes 40%. The publisher does take 40%, but out of that, um, they have to pay for the printing, the editing and the design, which is about 20%, and also for the distribution of the book too. So, and that's another that's another 40%. So it's actually 50 to the publisher, but once you take out that 20% for distribution and 20% for the cost of the book, they mm. get 10% as well, the same as the writer. When you break it down like that, it's quite shocking. So you've already made it clear that you can't it's really hard to make money from writing novels. Has it always been that way? Yeah, that's been the formula for as long as I've been in the game. What has changed, I think, maybe not so much with New Zealand publishers or not with my New Zealand publisher, but overseas with my overseas publishers across the board, I know that advances have been shrinking. So the advance is the lump sum that the publisher pays the writer when they agree to take a book on. And usually you get half of that sum when you sign the contract and half when the book is actually printed. And an advance means just that, and it's it's an advance on the royalties that you will earn. So for argument's sake, if you get an advance of $10,000 and the cover price excluding GST is $50, then you have to sell 2,000 copies before the royalties start to kick in. Mm. So you have to earn out that, that amount before you start getting those few dollars per each copy that is sold. Which doesn't sound a lot. I mean, 2000 surely you'd sell easily $2,000. Um, yeah, you'd expect to in New Zealand. I mean, I know that a book is considered a, a, a real success, a novel anyway, a work of fiction, is considered a real success in New Zealand if you hit 5000 So we're not talking about huge sales. If you sell 10000 that's that's really great um, for New Zealand figures. Is yeah. that a bestseller, 10000 Yep, it would be. Gosh. Yep. It's, oh, gee. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, you have to do it for love, don't you? And yeah. why are advances shrinking? An advance is really a risk that the publisher takes on. Um, you know, they do their sums and figure out that, well, we think this book is going to sell X number of copies. Therefore, we can take this much of a financial risk in, in signing this writer. But if the book doesn't have that commercial success, then the publisher is left out of pocket. If a book bombs in the marketplace for whatever reason, bad timing, bad luck, bad reviews, whatever, then, yeah, the publisher will will lose out on it. So I think um, the appetite for risk in the publishing world has shrunk mm. over the years. 
Yeah. What do you tell your students? I mean, because the world the world of publishing has changed so much, hasn't it? But do I mean do you yeah. even talk about the money side of things or do you focus really on the writing? I do both. Um so at the moment I'm teaching a graduate paper called Writing for Publication and I'm very upfront with the stats of first of all how how likely it is that you'll be accepted for publication in the first place and I do I don't sugarcoat you know the the financial side of things because I think we shouldn't be selling them a fairy tale we need to be realistic with new writers about what it's actually like as a job but at the same time I never want to quash their enthusiasm for writing because they're probably the same as me that they have this burning desire in them to tell their stories and to get those into the hands of readers. So I'm definitely in the business of um, fanning those flames. Mm. And and But they're telling those stories in a different way. I mean, you know, the novel the novel isn't dead, but it's, it's being written differently now. It is, and I think it's possibly harder to sell a doorstopper of a book. (laughs) Um, There's a lot more interest in flash fiction, you know, really short, short stories. I think, you know, short stories themselves are having a moment. Poetry is coming into its own. Memoir, um, creative nonfiction are all rising up through the marketplace in a way that they didn't before. So there's still a huge appetite for reading out there. But maybe as writers, we need to think about the shape that our books are going to take. If if there is so many different ways now of writing, I mean, would you, would you approach your next novel in a different way? I probably wouldn't write uh, another novel that was as long as Remote Sympathy, which I think from memory was about 150,000 words. That's quite a big, that's quite a big read. Why is that, Catherine? Is it is it just that people look at the size of a book and go, oh, gosh, no, I couldn't get through that? Yeah, I think they do. I think a lot of readers do. Um, our attention spans have dwindled. And that was one thing that I um, read in some of the reviews of Remote Sympathy, that this is a long book. And usually there would be a but after that, you know, but it's well worth the read, the same as, you know, well, this is a book told by a magpie. Um, <laughs> it's not that I... Um, follow the advice of every reviewer and think, right, well, I'm going to change what I'm writing next based on um, the opinion of one person. But I think it's also folly not to have an ear to the ground um, in terms of what readers are warming to and what they're possibly struggling with. The creative part of writing is hard enough, but actually so much of writing, especially now, is on the business side as well. Gracie Kim is a children's fantasy author and she has made the big time. It sounds like fiction, but it was a life-changing experience that put her there. While working as a diplomat in China, she ended up in hospital with bandages wrapped around her eyes after urgent surgery. I spent a lot of time in the months ensuing when I had no sight to really think. And so I really went back to words and to writing, because this one memory popped up, which was in primary school, where I wrote a story about my family, and I was very proud of it. Um, And my teacher pulled me aside afterwards and said, you know, this is a good piece of writing, but I just wanted to ask you why you described yourself as being blonde. 
and blue-eyed. And I remember being really perplexed by the question because I was like, what do you mean? And she said, well, I don't know if you've noticed, but you're ethnically Korean. Uh, Why did you not describe yourself in a realistic manner? Was this in a New Zealand school? Yeah, yeah, it was. And I was very confused. And I said, well, that's the rule, isn't it? I've, you know, I read a lot of books. I was a real, you know, bookworm. And I'd never read a book that had anyone that represented me or any part of me, really, um, of my cultural side or my ethnic side. And so... I just thought it was a rule that no matter who you were in real life, in books, you had to be white Pākehā, because that was all I had known. And my teacher at the time said, I'm really sorry that was the rule that you made in your head um, from the evidence you had, but it just means someone hasn't done it yet. She was the one to do it with her stories for children and young adults. I wanted to make the switch. Uh, because it was meaningful to me, but also because I was thinking about having a family and I wanted a lifestyle that could support that. And I knew, I somehow knew in the back of my mind that it would be more than just a creative pursuit. It would have to be if I wanted to make a living out of it. And and, and to cut a long story short, you're writing about Korean witches (laughs) and their hidden world. (laughs) Yeah, so my first trilogy is for... um, a little younger than young adults, so middle grade, intermediate school, pri- late primary intermediate school kids. And yeah, it's inspired by Korean mythology. So it's set in today's world and it's actually set in the US. So it's modern day contemporary setting. Mm. But there is a hidden world um, underneath our the world that we can see that's inspired by yeah all the stories and folk tales and ghost stories and monster tales that I was told when I was little. Even though I consider being an author, a creative entrepreneurship, so it's creative and business. Um, Yeah, you still need the product, right? You still need the words and you need something that people want to read. It can't be rubbish. Um, But I think even that is a mix of true, pure creativity plus the understanding of the market. Like, for example, right now in in the international market, which includes New Zealand in a broad brush stroke, um, in the young adult market, um, you can't really sell dystopian young adult novels at the moment. They were so the rage for a while. Yeah. But right now, just market-wise, people won't buy those books. Well, people are over them, or they just because we're living in a bit of a dystopic <laughs> world, so people don't want to read about what's going on around them. Probably both. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, for whatever reason, uh, if you're following industry news and you do the research, then you know that right now those books won't be acquired by um, editors at publishing houses, and they won't be chosen by agents to be represented. So there's a certain amount of market research to be done. And just, you know, it's not really even business acumen. It's just understanding of the industry that you're going into. And so um, I know some writers might feel that that's against their creative purity, if you will. Um, And that's fine. If you write for yourself and your um, desire is just to write, I think that's fine. But if your goal is to be published right now or in the near future, then it really helps to have the understanding of how the market is going. So Mm. for me, it was a mix of researching what is trending or what Um, what is being sought after at that moment in time by editors and agents, and then finding that sweet spot in the Venn diagram of what I can offer, what I can write, and what is being sought after, and finding that little niche spot that's mine. So you you, you came up with this idea. What then? You went to an agent? You found yourself an agent? Yes. So it was quite a long process. 
the first manuscript I tried to write, because, you know, this was my first foray into writing, so I really had no idea what I was doing. So the first manuscript I completed, I completed, and I was very proud of that. But it was terrible. And so when I did try to go out to agents for to seek representation, um, because the decision I had made was to try to get into the U.S. publishing industry by virtue of it being the largest in the world, because I wanted to make a living out of it, I thought, well, why not try going into the market where I could actually make a living? So when I did that, I quickly realized from the many and speedy rejections uh, that it was terrible. And it really was. It was rubbish. It was rubbish. I had you know, spent a lot of effort and time, and I needed to go through that process. But I also needed to appreciate that I couldn't be precious with my words if I wanted to be hardy in this industry and last, you need to grow a thick skin. So at what point did you get an agent? So after this first manuscript um, died, it's quick death, uh, then I wrote a second one. And this one was the one that was about the Korean witches, inspired by um, my cultural mythologies. And then this interesting thing happened. So as part of my research, I realized at the time, and I will preface that at the moment, this is not so much of a thing, but at the time, a lot of um, writers would use Twitter pitch contests to get in front of agents. So traditionally what you do is you write a query letter uh, and you send your completed polished manuscript to an agent. They read it. And then if they like it, they'll ask you questions and they may offer you an offer of representation. But, I mean, they must get bombarded with thousands. I mean, how do you get it through all those thousands? Yes, absolutely. They're, they are inundated, absolutely inundated by these query letters. So sometimes it takes them months or years just to get a rejection. And so these Twitter pitch contests were so timely for me. So what happens is there used to be these hashtags, like I did the one called DV pit, Diverse Pitches, and you summarize your entire novel in the space of a tweet, and you put the hashtag on there. And for that one day of 24 hours or whatever it is, agents will go and just scroll through those hashtags and if they like the concept of a story they'll like it and that means that you can go to the top of the email queue to be considered by them so you're not getting favorable attention but you're just getting there faster Mm -hmm. okay so that that's how you found your agent or your agent found you then what what was the what what happened after that so i have found that the whole process of writing is rewriting Definitely rewriting. And so we rewrote, rewrote, amended, amended. And when my agent finally thought it was ready, we went out on what's called submission. So we went out on submission, which is where the agent takes your work and then shops it around uh, to editors at different publishing houses to see if they're willing to acquire the work. Editors, you know, would like certain things about the manuscript, but not, you know, other things. And we amassed so many rejections. Could wallpaper my room. Um, And then finally we had one maybe. It wasn't even a yes, but just one maybe from an editor at a publishing house who said, I like this, but you need to make these changes as per my vision, 19 pages of edits. And I read through it and I initially thought this is, this is preposterous. I, this is, I can't do this. This is changing my entire book. I'd have to rewrite the entire thing. Uh, And then I went away for a few weeks and I realized she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. I think writing has really taught me a lot about humility and reflection and that sometimes the things you don't want to hear are the things that you need to hear and that will make you even stronger for it. And so I believed in her vision. We did it. And then she acquired it. And that was um, under Disney Hyperion, which is a publisher in the U.S. And so that was how I got my first 
book deal. (laughs) And not just any book deal, but a deal in the highly prized US market that includes translation and film rights. Now, there's a lot of talk about the the book industry, that it's dying, or is it, clearly it's not, because what you're, the market that you're writing for is thriving, isn't it? So what is it? Is it, is it about, like you say, doing your research and adapting to whatever the market wants, whatever the readers want? I don't think books are going anywhere, and I don't know if that's just hopeful optimism on my part because, you know, I'm in the industry, but I just don't think they are. If you look back when e-readers first came out, everyone, you know, the fear-mongering of, you know, the world of books as we know it is over, no one's going to read anymore, what have you, but actually for a while it dipped and then it increased in certain areas. I mean, uh, romance books, for example, that whole industry is buoying up the entire publishing industry. I'm pretty sure last year they clocked over a billion US dollars in revenue just last year. Because what happened with an e-reader, for example, is what you were reading became a lot more discreet. It became immediate. You didn't have to physically go into a store. You pushed a button and it just got delivered. Um, and it meant you could read faster and faster and you didn't have to stack up paperbacks in your house somewhere. It was so easy. And the price point dropped as well because, you know, no paper. And then it created this booming industry of of readers, especially female readers. And there are, there are so many Kiwi writers um, who are in their niches, you know, making high six-figure incomes every year doing these amazing things, not just writing and pumping out books because they really pump out those books, um, but also just nailing it on the online, social media, promotion, marketing, um, business side of things as well. They Mm. are a force to watch. TikTok, the emergence of TikTok and people spreading grassroots love for the books that they've read has made through the pandemic book sales have just shot off, you know, through the roof. And I don't think people would have envisaged that because we were really, you know, people were talking about that downward trend of books. But no, we see these little explosions mm-hmm. of interest. And even in children's publishing, now we're seeing, seeing a, a huge boon of um, graphic novels. And, you know, and some people might say, well, all graphic novels, are they really books? You know, are children reading less? But they're still books and they're still reading. So, so you've been success. You, you are successful, uh, which is wonderful. You may not ever win an Occam, though. Does that does that bother you? <laughs> Absolutely not. I think um, again, when you consider a career in something, I think it's really important to understand what your goals are. And I think the idea that you want to be everything to everyone is is setting yourself up to fail. I think it's really important to know what you're setting out to achieve for yourself. And for me, I always wanted to write entertaining, first of all, fun books for young people. And that was really it. So for me, I knew I wanted to go down a commercial route because, one, I wanted to make a living because I want to be able to do this, you know, hopefully for the rest of my life or at least for a long time. Mm. And for me, um, as dirty as the money word is, that's important. I don't need to make millions and gazillions of dollars, but I need enough to be able to continue to do this thing. I see awards coming up like the Occam's, and I am so, honestly, I am so happy for the writers that go down that path. And I think 
all kudos to them. But I don't, I really don't feel that, oh, why not me? No, I'm just on a different path and I'm really happy for both of us. It feels like it's getting harder to do this job, but then there have always been challenges to writing and writers, if they want to do it badly enough, will still find a way to do it. Um, I think books are expensive because paper is more and more expensive and there are supply chain issues with actually getting the books into the shops and all of those complications um, that have arisen in recent years. But for me, it will always be a job that I love doing and that I do because I'm passionate about it and that I'll do, you know, (laughs) long after I should probably shut up. (laughs) So it's not something that I'd ever dissuade new keen writers from doing. I think we need new voices. We need diverse voices. We need new talent to be kind of feeding that stream all the time and and you know as long as I can still be part of it then I will be That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Catherine Chidji and Gracie Kim. Kakiti anō. <laughs>